Hi, this is Vanessa Sunshine. Hi, this is Alicia. Hi, I'm Georgia Love. I'm Osha Ginsberg. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, you are on the Bachelor of Hearts podcast. What do you do with an arts degree? I'm still not sure I know. I skipped three years worth of lectures just to binge watch awful shows. There must be some scholarship for accruing worthless knowledge. It's my only talent, honey. That and losing money. Let your excess hex debts rest and then just join us while we start on our bachelor. Hello and welcome back to the Bachelor of Hearts podcast, the Bachelor Australia Bachelor Extended Universe podcast that asks the question, Xavier, what are we doing here? I think that's a fair question. Um, Normally when we're doing a podcast, it's because The Bachelor or Bachelorette or Bachelor in Paradise is on television. Mm -hmm. Shockingly enough, it's been three months and it's still not on television. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we're getting itchy feet. We want to start like, uh, we miss the fans. We miss the Zave heads. We miss miss getting together and having a chin wag. Yeah, this is true. I mean, you and I caught up one time since the show ended. (laughs) I think that's right. Uh, because I feel like so much of our dynamic is like, well, we'll save it for the podcast and we'll talk about it then, even though we are incredibly close. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And uh, now here we are finding an excuse, any excuse. This is a Batchy bonus episode where we are turning our gaze to the extended Bachelor universe and calling in some friends along the way to help us. Today's focus, the beautiful, tangentially connected to the franchise, Amy Mann album, Bachelor number two. And joining us... From New York to talk about it, you know him as the Shred King in session, the Power Pop Prince Riffy Longstockings himself. Spencer Fox from the band Charlie Bliss is here. Hi, Spencer. Hey, guys. Uh, quick question. Was was Riffy Longstockings just off the top of the dome? Was that improv? <laughs> it, was, um, it was improv about five minutes ago. And then I was got like, it. it's good. I've mm. got to keep it. Wow. Yeah. It was bounced oh, off I'm... me and I approved it. Thank you. I'm incredibly impressed. Thank you so much. It is um, of my one skill in life. So <laughs> this is nice. I feel like we're getting off uh, on a good good foot here, Spencer. How are you? I am good. I am good. I uh, am recently in New York. I've been living in LA for the past few months, and it is very nice to be away from like the COVID uh, epicenter of, I guess, the world. Yeah. Mm. There's yeah, no COVID in New York, right? <laughs> well, it's it's here, but it's like in LA, the neighborhood I was living in, I think when it was at its worst, one in every eight people had COVID. God, that's yeah. horrible. And I was like truly afraid to like leave my home. It was not yeah, fun. Yeah. So what made you make the move over there to begin with? I think because of, you know, like in Charlie Bliss, we toured so so much between you know like 2015 and covid Mm. happening Mm. that i don't think i like had the opportunity to even like question whether or not i wanted to continue living in new york or like decide where i want to live so like not being on tour all the time just opened that question up for me and it just felt like an opportunity that i needed to like, like at least try out and just see how it went yeah um and it was, it was really fun la is a, a wild place to be it's a pretty fun city i would imagine maybe more fun not in the grips of a uh global <laughs> pandemic maybe <laughs> i would say like significantly more fun uh when the plague is not <laughs> running rampant throughout the city i was there during the opinion. black death Oh, um, yeah, right, cool. Oh, yeah. Like the, what, 1400s or whatever? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, LA during the bubonic plague was fucking lit. It was yeah, it was kind of good, I got to say. Yeah. But all the Zoom calls and stuff were just like kind of doing my head in after oh. a while. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I forgot my login, so I had to move to uh, <laughs> my mother's womb. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I don't know. Nice. Um, we're really like. <laughs> <laughs> taking this joke, taking this bit for a ride around the block. <laughs> That's right, yeah. um, so, I mean, we're here, we're talking about an album that is very special to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Spencer, we, I think we just started talking on Twitter when you posted a clip from, um, <clears throat> sorry, I haven't podcasted in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do any vocal warm ups before that? I actually didn't. 
I, I drank a whole thing of Monster, and I thought that would do it, and it was not the right move. Wow. Yeah. If I did that, I would be having a full-blown panic attack Yeah, right me now. too. Yeah. I think I would be um, medically dead. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the medically... Uh... The medical term. <laughs> it woke up like parts of my body, but I think generally speaking, I'm still asleep. <laughs> it woke know, up parts yeah, of yeah. my body that I didn't know existed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my appendix is going yeah. crazy right yeah. now. <laughs> my pancreas is. <laughs> I've secreted so many enzymes over the last half an hour, dude. My lymph nodes are, are blowing up right now. It's, it's fucking nuts. It's just jacked. <laughs> um. So we're talking about Bachelor Number 2, which um, is a very special album to me. And I think, Spencer, we brought you on because it seems like it's a very special album for you as well. Um, I think the story of Bachelor Number 2 is a really interesting one um, within the context of the music industry, within the context of Amy Mann's career. And it's a story of a really determined artist backing themselves despite a record label and arguably an entire industry that just didn't really care what she was doing. So I need some context here because my, well, the way that I came to Amy Mann was that a few months ago you said we should do a podcast about this record. Mm. And I was like, shit, who's this? Um, and look, uh, truth told, I think it's a fabulous and beautiful record, but I have no idea of the of the mythos. I don't know any of the context. And I'm wondering if you are uh, a brand new listener to the Bachelor of Hearts podcast, perhaps you've come to us from a world of uh, reality TV, as you rightly should. Maybe you're wondering too. Tell, tell me what you can. What, is, what does this rec- record represent and, and who is Amy? Amy Mann is a great singer, performing artist. Um, she recorded three albums with her band Till Tuesday in the 1980s. Um, I don't even have that much of the prehistory before that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I don't know where she grew up off the top of my head. Um, Massachusetts. They always do. Yes, probably. <laughs> is, that, is that true? It feels, like everyone, um, it feels like everyone grew up there. Spencer, did you grow up in Massachusetts? No, I grew up. I grew up in in Brooklyn. So you grew up in Massachusetts. I, I, what I meant to, I'm sorry. Did I say Brooklyn? I meant to say Massachusetts. That sounds right. Yeah, 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 yep. it sounds better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of the Massachusetts of the New York area. <laughs> yeah, one might say of the boroughs. Right. Of the Massachusetts. Editor's note: Amy Mann was born in Richmond, Virginia, which I am told is the Massachusetts of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So uh, Amy Mann recorded these three albums with Till Tuesday. A couple of members left the band. Um, and they left their label Epic Records over creative differences, and there was a little uh, tussle as to what would happen next. Mm. Um, and then there was also a three-year period where she was not allowed to release any other music um, because she was still trying to get out of the contract um, with Epic Records, who were kind of trying to decide, like, mm-hmm, I mean, we don't know if we want to sign, you know, renew your contract or if we want you to make another record for us or whatever, but we don't want you to go and make a record for somebody else and like have a hit with them or anything. So um, we're just going to keep you sort of orbiting the ecosystem here for a little while um, until eventually like three years later, she was able to break out of that contract Um, that uh, resulted in a couple of solo albums, um, which uh, funnily enough, neither of them were released on the, record labels that they were recorded for uh huh um due to various other um industry uh situations i didn't read up on the other albums quite as much as um bachelor number 2 for this podcast but um the information's out there yeah i think i think also the sales of those records which you know were pretty beloved albums and still like come up on lists and stuff like that as like very well liked records her first album is like this great power pop sort of record it's a little more scaled back i think than the album we'll be talking about today but it's really interesting anyway um but i think the sales were a bit disappointing to the suits and stuff at the various different labels that she was signed to um despite being pretty warmly received um and so she got to work on this third album with a different label geffen um and I think the history of the intersection between Geffen and a couple of other labels that were sort of swallowed up by Interscope Records at the end of the 1990s um, has a lot to do with what makes this album an interesting piece of history. Interscope is an album, a record label that started in the 1990s and was pre- predominantly like a hip-hop and gangster rap label, um, and they were producing really big hit albums, um, but it was 
you know they they were being so they were so successful in the 1990s that they swallowed up a lot of smaller labels including Geffen which was like more of an alternative rock sort of college rock type of label and that kind of music didn't really have a home there unless it was like a certified sort of hit maker or something mm-hmm. so Interscope Records during the recording process of Bachelor Number no. 2 felt like the album didn't have a single um, they felt like it wouldn't produce a hit and then they, they thought that, you know, it wouldn't have any commercial appeal because of those things. Right. So, you know, her label mates at the time are people like Limp Biscuit and Marilyn Manson and they're like big macho sort of hit makers that demand space. And, um, you know, there's also a conversation to be had about the ecosystem of like pop music at the end of the 1990s in the sense that there is not a huge amount of pop music that is not targeted explicitly towards teenagers and young people. It's interesting. There are, there are albums by like Sheryl Crow mm-hmm. and Alanis Morissette that are kind of bucking that trend. But I think generally speaking, it's a smaller segment of the audience than we're looking at these days. Spencer, I want to bring you in here because it feels like um, this is the collapse of a moment in music at the at the beginning of the 2000s and Amy Mann seems to be the sort of artist who before everyone else kind of went the DIY route before anyone else really pursued it and and went look I'm going out and I'm doing this myself and kind of fuck you if you don't if you if you're not there for me she was the one, you know, this is, this is a trailblazer to a certain extent. Um, to what extent does that resonate with you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, it's crazy because the idea of being mistreated by a label, buying back your masters and putting it out yourself now almost feels like a cliche story. A hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So many times, but she, this was happening in like 1999 so, like, this was before, like, you know, the quote-unquote, like, music industry bubble even burst. Mm, mm. Like, this wasn't bred from her kind of, like, looking ahead and being like, okay, this is all going to fall apart one day. This was just, like, her being like, this is just fucking ridiculous. Like, yeah. I know these songs are good. Yeah. Um, I have a bunch of old snooty men telling me that they're not good enough, and that's just, like, fucking untrue. Um and I don't know, like that's like an, a, a tremendously risky decision yeah. to sort of, you know, ignore the people in power and ignore the people who like, quote unquote, like understand like the marketplace of music <laughs> consumers or whatever to basically say like, fuck you. I know my opinion is the correct one. Mm. And buying back a full record's worth of masters is that's not cheap. Yeah, that probably. Mm. I, I, I mean, I haven't like you know, dug too far into, you know, the backstory of the, of the record to understand how she managed to afford that. But I mean, she did. And I was, I was reading about the record today and, uh, there was some quote where she was like, first of all, the record sold online, I think something like 250,000 copies, Mm -hmm. which is, that's for a self-released album in 1999 or 2000. That's insane. Staggering. Yeah. And yeah, it's nuts. And there was some, uh, quote that was like, Selling 30,000 records would have earned her more money self-released than selling 300,000 records on Geffen. Yeah, right. So, like, the, the, like, margins there are just insane, and it was such a risk. And I think, like, the fact that she succeeded so well, like, kind of just paved the trail for countless bands that came after her. Mm. Because I think, you know, pre- Amy Mann and pre 2000s as an artist you were just completely beholden to what your label told you to do right you just listened to them because labels made Nirvana labels made Limp Bizkit or whatever yeah it was sort of just like this all-knowing source of of information and wisdom that you just had to bow down to and capital so much yeah I, I feel like in a way it's almost a forgotten element of what led to the bursting of the major label bubble or the, you know, the, the industry bubble at that time is, you know, we talk a lot about um, Napster and, uh, you know, the rise of MP3s and, um, you know, how that has impacted uh, the way that money works within the industry. And I mean, I guess, you know, selling things online is a part of this story, but she started her own label. Like it was not, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it was not um, 
directly and obviously like you know she got a distribution deal and it's still kind of records still kind of had to be released through the usual well i think she got i think she got a distribution deal only like a like a year or like halfway through the album rollout right it it, initially it was just super ego records which is the label that she started um but i think a lot of the i mean it's hard to use her sort of as like the poster child for like going you know, independent and doing it your own way because she also sort of had the momentum from being heavily featured in Magnolia, which right. is like such a, I mean, it was like up for all these Oscars and she performed at the Oscars. So yeah. obviously she was in, she was very prepped to, you know, go solo and go mm-hmm. rogue mm. in the way that she did. But I think like between Magnolia and between the fact that like the fact that she was breaking away from her label got her like a ton of press like there's this great new york times article about her like during sort of like her dying days with geffen but i also uh, read that new york times article for this podcast dude it's it's so good yeah it's such an amazing story and she's just she just fucking rules like she's so she manages to have done like one of the most like audacious and like you know not arrogant but just like such like belief in her own ability Mm that it's crazy how humble and modest she right. comes off in every single interview she's ever given. And and it doesn't, it's not like a showy album either. I think no, we'll talk no, about no, this no. A, a little bit more in a second, but like, you know, it, it, the, the focus on just like pure songwriting and craft and like restraint and, you know, knowledge of light and shade and all that kind of stuff is like, um, it's kind of what makes it so interesting that this is an album that, that is also such a turning point. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you think about a record that, can do so successfully without sort of like the trappings of having like a major label support. Mm. You imagine this like giant, like grandiose, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. crazy, huge sounding like rock album or something. Sure. But in reality, some new it's sound very... that no one's ever heard anything like before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But it's this very like understated, uh, you know, sort of like folky, introspective, mm. uh, like folk rock album that I think is like so gorgeous, but like, not immediately where your brain goes to when you hear sort of like the backstory of how this record happened. Mm. Um, I am glad that you brought up Magnolia because um, I feel like that's something that maybe we should touch on a little bit. Um, that's how I discovered Amy Mann's music. And um, it was actually only fairly recently. Like I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I probably only saw that movie like two years ago. Um, but her music is featured really heavily in that movie. There's like, I think eight or nine songs in there. There are a couple of songs that she wrote specifically for the movie or that, I'm not sure if she wrote them for the movie or if they're just only, you know, were only available in the soundtrack for the movie at the time. Um, she was nominated for like best original song at the Oscars. She performed at the Academy Awards. Um, I am also curious because Spencer, you probably don't know this, but Max has only ever seen like 10 movies. Yeah. This is not a strong <laughs> suit of mine. So I would, I would love it if yep. it's not too much trouble. If you could tell us what you think Magnolia is about. The plot like, of Magnolia. Maybe the vibe. Dude, or... You could not have picked a worse movie to like give an elevator pitch for. <laughs> well, I mean, you've been All listening right, to so, the, Amy uh... Pan, the Amy Mann music, so I imagine you'd just be able to suss it out from there, right? Okay. It's, it's, it's like this, it's like an ensemble cast, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all of these characters are kind of like dealing with like moments of failure and self-realization and like just coming up against a wall. Spencer, don't give him too much information. I want to hear Max describe it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. So as I was saying, it's an ensemble cast (laughs) and all of these characters coming up against uh, moments of abject failure. And so what that means is that, um, have you seen, okay. Have you seen Alvin and the Chipmunks? (laughs) So many times. Yeah, right. only all, all three of them. Yep, okay, right. I'm actually watching it right now <laughs> on so, a separate screen. What I would say... We set up a camera in front of a, <laughs> a screen of Alvin yeah. and so we could have ju- it on the Zoom call. You can't see it, but I, every time I'm on a Zoom call, I always have Alvin and the Chipmunks playing <laughs> just out of view. Yeah. yeah. I imagine that it's very soothing, um, because I know that it is to me. Mm. And I want you to imagine Alvin and the Chipmunks meets Schindler's List. Mm. I, I mean, this is, I mean, every critic has said it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. what's left to say. Yeah, about, it's, you know, um, it's SpongeBob and John Wayne together at last, mm. you know, mm. th- these are, um, these are the kind of elements that I'm pulling from in order to assemble what I assume is a bit of a pastiche of a film. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm going to say that um, there are moments of light and shade. Yeah. Yeah. I Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I imagine that there are parts that feel quite... Um, almost folk rock 
Yeah, that's actually very true. Mm. It's very apt. And I think that has only grown more true as critics have looked back on this film. Right, yep. And then, obviously, the scene in the garden. Mm. The literal literal Magnolia scene is... um, Right, right. Yeah, The pivotal scene where uh, John C. Riley looks directly into the camera and said, Wow, these sure are a bunch of Magnolias. (laughs) That's it. Yes, yep. And that that actually, you know... um, It's like how the... um, the tagline for the movie Shrek is like the greatest fairy tale never told. Right. 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 The tagline for Magnolias is, wow, these sure are a bunch of Magnolias. Mag- Magnolias. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, and look, I think it's good to do what you say you're going to do on the tin. And I really applaud that movie and its straightforwardness. What about, I want to run past you a couple of moments that, that may or may not happen in the film. And I'd love it if you could tell me whether they do or don't happen. Great. Yes, please. Um, did you enjoy the sequence where um, it rains literal frogs from the sky all over all of the characters? That is one of the most moving scenes in modern cinema. Mm. Mm. Yep. And it is. Thank you. Uh, do you enjoy the scene where the whole cast, independently from their separate locations where they're hanging out, um, start singing an Amy Mann song while looking directly into the camera. Deeply. Mm. I found like, I, 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 I thought <laughs> that's something that, um, it, it resonates with me on a spiritual level. Mm. Mm. I'm trying to think of a good third one. <laughs> uh, what about when, when Theodore takes a solo in, uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> interpretation of Amy Mann's hit, deathly yes okay so that part of magnolia is obviously like that's the oscar winning moment i think that's the part where like um Mm. every every screenwriter in the in the world looks at that and goes fuck yeah they get up out of the chair and they they go can i vote now please i don't need to see the rest of the films (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) whether whether um the guild america whoa um Look, there's, um, there's, I mean, there are so many more meaningful, meaningful parts of that film, though, Xavier. Did you enjoy the part where um, Paddington 2 uh, sheds, sheds a single tear as... In, in Magnolia. In Magnolia, yeah. yeah where as, the character... When, when Paddington 2... Whose name is Paddington, Paddington 2. 2, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. Sheds a single Last tear meeting literal Amy Mann as, as she walks into the film and announces herself and says, Hi, Paddington 2. I'm Amy Mann, bitch. <laughs> yeah, when Amy Mann looks right at the camera and says, I'm Amy Mann, bitch. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about you, Xavier, but I, I, I break out in tears. Every it's time moving. Time. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can't help yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I would recommend that film to anyone. Yeah. Great. On the basis of that scene alone. Yeah. 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 Well, look, I really... um. You know what? I don't remember, actually. It might That might be in like the deleted scenes. So mm-hmm. if anybody watches Magnolia as a result of this podcast and doesn't notice that part, maybe you need to pick up the Blu-ray and like, you know, search through. It could be on YouTube or something. I don't know. Have a look. So, I mean, maybe we should talk a bit about the album itself. Yes, um, I listened to it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this this atmosphere um, of pressure, you would think maybe some artists would cave under that pressure, I think, or, or at least like feel very compelled to... Um, try i mean i i do get the sense that she was trying to on some level create a hit or write a single just by the sense that you can tell that she is really stepping up to the plate with this record um and i think there was an ongoing process of trying to record this album and getting feedback that was bad and you know trying again um but i think this kind of pushed her i don't want to mythologize it in the sense that like a, a, a uncaring major label is the best way to make a good album or mm. whatever. Um, but I do think that um, she took this challenge head on and um, it drove her to create what I think still stands up as her best body of work, even though she has had an incredibly consistent last like 20 years. Mm. Um, and, you know, it it is, like we said, it is an unpretentiously recorded album. It is like really nicely produced. It is not overblown or over the top, but it still has idiosyncrasies and it still has its own personality. It still has a really distinct vibe to it. Um, I think the production is one of the great elements of this record. Um, 
it's like very evocative. It's like, so Amy Mann kind of came up playing amongst a small group of musicians at a place called Largo, Mm. which I don't know a huge amount about. I've been to Largo a bunch of times. Have you? It's fabulous. Oh yeah. What can you tell us? Yeah. So it's like a theater in Los Angeles that is a hub for creativity often you'll go and you'll buy a ticket to whatever's on that night and you won't exactly know what's on that night yeah it does seem like there's a community of people who just kind of have formed around that venue and who will go there constantly and yeah precisely um the so uh, i've seen john bryan a bunch of times there i saw john bryan there uh last year yeah yeah. um what is one of like the best shows i've ever seen yeah a magical songwriter and, and producer. And then another time I turned up and the lineup was Mark Marin, Judd Apatow and Noel Fielding. Wow. And it was just, I was just like, well, I don't, I don't need to see any more comedy for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched these. I've watched these three. You've done it. Yeah. You've checked them off. The I've list. checked this off. All Going three home to watch Alvin the Chipmunks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no more do, comedy. But, uh... I'll just, just curl up yep. and watch just Alvin and the Chipmunks. Um, so I guess like what are what are some? I guess I'm I'm mostly curious about your um, response to the record, Max. Hearing it basically for the first time, yeah. Um, what did you think? What what strikes you about it? Well, so taking in some of this context, mm. I want to reroute this question a little bit sure. because I. Don't know to what extent you write to write a hit. Mm. Um, and so, Spencer, I, I wonder uh, of you, uh, it, as you're writing songs for Charlie Bliss, are you like, or contributing to songs as, as part of a, a broader collaborative process, are you like, this is a single? I think, like, I think there are definitely tons of artists and bands who write songs for the hopes of, of getting a... Uh, successful single Mm -hmm. like that is the goal Mm. that's like what's in the in the crosshairs but i think the way we write and the way amy mann writes and the way that like a lot of my favorite musicians write is it's just purely you just sit down to write a song yeah um and hope that like sort of like your intuition and your artistic process is like keen enough that it will be a single to like somebody right it's like just for yourself a hundred percent I think the tough thing and like something that like someone like Amy Mann and I'm sure and like definitely Charlie Bliss and so many bands and, and artists come up against is like when the music industry is operating under these like really, really strict terms um, as to which like they are uh, like defining what a popular single is. Because mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, it's all dictated by like this top like upper echelon of executives and A&R people and Hell radio yeah. people. Mm. They're just the ones, you know, kind of sitting back on their laurels, deciding what like a hit song is mm-hmm. that at a certain point, you just need to sort of just like give in and just be like, I'm never going to write a perfect song for all of these people. Right. Like, maybe I'll get lucky. And one of these like weird, you know, industry overlords will say great job and like put me on like a fucking Spotify playlist. Right. But it's it's just an, it's always like a, a losing battle. It's it's so difficult. And I think like if you're writing to please someone other than yourself, like this sounds so fucking like the like bottom of like a yogurt lid. No, like, but it's true. <laughs> like yeah. it's an important it lesson talking. from this record. It it's just like, if you're, if you are doing any sort of fucking artistic endeavor to, you know, if your end game is to please somebody besides yourself, like you're going to end up shorthanded. A hundred percent or another. This is what I say to uh, artists who might come to me for, advice to someone who works in the music industry in Australia, like you have as many shots at at piercing the zeitgeist of success as you have songs, basically, you know, like, and as long as you are doing what you are doing to fill your creative cup, cool. You know what I mean? Like you don't control those things and you need to become, the sooner that you become at peace with what you don't control, the sooner what you do control becomes the best version of whatever it can be. And you'll find the audience that you're meant to find. Mm. 100% and I think like the sad reality is that like unless you're one of these people that get like plucked out of obscurity Mm. by industry people and are like literally fed what to do and told how to make the right decisions Mm -hmm. you control nothing yep Mm. you control absolutely nothing and so like how much you succeed or fail 
kind of just comes down to like what your ambitions are and how you're like contextualizing mm. your career as a musician. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the few things that I think you can control is how satisfied you can be with your own work mm-hmm. in the sense that Boom. like, if you're working really hard to please somebody else at the expense of pleasing yourself and that doesn't work out, you won't even like your own music, let alone yeah. no one else being interested in it. You're going to you know? feel so bad. Right. right. You may as well do something that you're <laughs> proud of and interested in and back um even if it doesn't work out right exactly do what matters 100%. to you and uh yeah it's, it's a great lesson to learn and it's one that i feel like is really reflected in this record and it is something that definitely struck me as i listened to it for the first time thinking like uh well there's not what i would consider to be a radio single on this album but as a body of work it is so strong and there are so many moments that live within this ecosystem that really stand out, you know, and that are meaningful. Mm. And the the way that, like, you talked about the production, Xavier, but, like, for me, it was just the straightforwardness of the of the lyric, you know. Mm. Um, the I think Red Vines is the song that comes closest to being, like, uh, something that would, would sure. cross over. I was going to say know? that, too. And, in yeah. fact, I would, I would stump for that as, um, if given the appropriate treatment or a similar treatment to other, like, sort of college rock sort of sounding i mean there's no way that that wouldn't reach an audience for sure and if you're looking at geffen at the time of let's say 1993 Mm -hmm. when they have the blue album and when they have august and everything after and a bunch of these other like more of that college rock kind of sound like maybe there is an opportunity for that to become something that that pierces the pieces of zeitgeist i think it also comes down to this timing situation of like right the the album was being put together right in that little crevice of time Mm. that falls between geffen being absorbed into interscope yeah and you know a lot of people were in danger of losing their jobs and like there was just a lot of stuff being up in the air at that time and i think they were unsure about how to handle this album um and it seems like they were erring on the side of caution in the sense that they just didn't want to engage with it i think yeah well like that's uh, that's kind of the thing where it just feels like a lot of people perhaps were making business decisions and, right. and looking out for what's best for them and no one was looking out for what's best for amy Mann, and so amy Mann looked out for what's best for amy Mann, and yeah. that rules um in the most in the most fundamental sense of like self-care mm. you know mm. uh the straightforwardness is what really stands out to me, factoring that in, in terms of her lyric writing. You know, the way that she will say, um, everyone loves you, why should they not? You know, and mm. it's such a, like, poignant kind of way of phrasing something that's sort of like, oh, shit, okay, cool. So we're just going to talk about this in plain and evocative terms mm. rather than, you know, she's she's also very good at, at, at metaphor and... Um, imagery flowery language but the way that she um she talks about like for example walking on eggshells to get beheaded or whatever that lyric is i've just butchered it but Mm. like there are such powerful and uh evocative moments of straightforwardness on this record that i feel like um are relatable and are relatable to an audience that is not um the let's say late 90s teen audience Mm. which is a valid and um powerful audience in and of itself of course yeah yeah Yeah, i think there are so many like just moments of really pure it almost feels reductive to like read them out because it's also the delivery i think oh yeah for sure but like you know the beginning of deathly which i think is an absolutely incredible song Mm -hmm. and there's this line um now that i've met you would you object to never seeing each other again? Oof. It's just like that. That's such a distillation of a feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a, a line that was plucked by Paul Thomas Anderson and put as a line of dialogue in a scene in Magnolia. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is just like, goes to show, I think like how incredible of a lyricist Amy Mann is that like such a high powered filmmaker would say like your lyrics are so good can i just take one of them verbatim mm. and use it as dialogue yeah in my movie which was like came on the heels directly after boogie nights which which was like this huge box office hit yeah right so right had, like so much writing on magnolia mm-hmm. yeah and he decided to like basically like the story of that movie is crazy because he basically like used 
Amy Ma- Amy Mann songs as sort of like the initial like seeds for the narrative of that movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need to watch it again. I I bought it yesterday and I was planning to watch it last night and I didn't. Um, what did you do instead? I watched fucking well, Alvin and Alvin the Chipmunks, Chipmunks right? too. <laughs> yeah, the road chip. It's the the fork in the road that we we yeah. all mm-hmm. come to. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, Magnolia or Alvin and the Chipmunks? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I took the path less. <laughs> I, it's nice, I took nice. the path with less magnolias growing on it maybe yes. yeah uh yeah um what's your favorite song you're on fire yeah <laughs> guys this is going so well it's calling no, right uh yeah the banter is just fucking world class um my favorite song on Bachelor Number Two is definitely one hundred percent. Like mm. I would say, that's one of my all-time favorite songs. I think like the entire record as a whole, it, it's like definitely a hard record to pick my favorite. Mm. Definitely, I feel of. like um, not to cut you off, but I feel like it's kind of the centerpiece of the record in a way. Oh, one hundred percent. I think like almost literally too. I think it's in the exact middle. It's like track six. Of I feel like it's got to like be the that. end of side A, right? Six of thirteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Has to be. Yeah. Um, but I think like, you know, what like we were talking about before, how the album is like very understated and restrained, um, almost like she's like holding herself back production wise mm. and just like how big she lets the song gets mm-hmm. lets the songs get. Um, that like instrumental outro mm. and just like how like explosive and cathartic it is, I think is only like made sort of like more effective by how downplayed the rest of the record is. Right. And whenever it like i always listen to this album like top to bottom yeah and whenever it gets to that part it just is like it's unbelievable it hits every single time I yeah have, i took some notes on my last last listen of this record and i wrote almost that exact same thing which is like when i press play or when i drop the needle on this record i am like anticipate like i'm happy that i know that within 15 20 minutes i will get to that instrumental outro of deathly and oh everything up until then is just like a beautiful like build to it Mm. um it's it's really a miracle of like um like track order in a way yeah you know sequencing and it's um yeah the sequencing on that album is like a near perfect i Mm. think yeah Uh, like it it compares to me to like something like a really well sequenced album like like yankee hotel foxtrot you know like one of these records that's just like you've put every song in the perfect order and i would not cut any of them Mm. you know and particularly i think I think this to be true of pop albums generally um, in that there are pop albums of that time. I would posit you'll often find some fat to cut. Uh, let me say like welcome into state managers, which is the founders of Wayne yeah. record, which I mm. fucking adore. There are a yeah. incredible, but I would cut like five songs. Me too. Like, yeah. Right off the bat. Yeah. 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 yeah there's just five sure. where you would be like, if you cut these, you have a perfect record. I think all <laughs> yeah. like founders of Wayne are probably one of my favorite bands, as I know, uh, probably both of yours. Mm. Um, I feel like every founders of Wayne record is incredible, but also maybe has like one or two tracks. That you could make. Yeah, it's like, did off. Fire Island really need to go on there? Oh again? no! Did oh, we... I disagree. Let us. <laughs> you love. Oh my boy. god. Okay. Oh, okay. Boy. Wait, but let's talk through that chord progression because. Uh, let's talk it out, like, man. This fucker is like. He is <laughs> it's like a... a Jimmy Buffett song, dude. I oh, know. I love it. I I I can't get. I thought you were about to be like, oh, I love Jimmy Buffett. G- uh, look. <laughs> Uh, this just turned into a Jimmy Buffett <laughs> podcast. Welcome yeah. to Margaritaville. Welcome baby. to Margaritaville. Yeah. Welcome to heads, Try the welcome. Buffett Buffet. Yeah. Bachelor of Parrotheads. Told you, my one skill. <laughs> wow. I'm, I mean, constantly just speechless. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, this is Australia's best Bachelor and Jimmy Buffett podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, Australia's only. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to focus on that part quite as much. Yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, sick. Well, look, Xavier, how much do you have? Do you have more? Well, I mean, I wanted to spotlight another great song on the album. If okay, great. Okay. Let's do that. There, I mean, the thing is, I could definitely gush about a lot of the songs on this record, as well as the record as a whole for a very long time. But I also, I think, nothing is good enough is another one with like an interesting story behind it. Incredible. Um, a wonderful song, a, an understated song. It's like. It's this 6-8 feel. It's like almost like a Burt Bacharach kind of w- without the cheese or whatever. But like it has this very 
I guess just like classic songwriting, like Buffettish. It's, it's yeah. So uh, reminiscent of uh, of early Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, she's sort of <laughs> taken a plate from the Buffett buffet for sure. Yeah, um, it's got a little uh, cheeseburger in paradise. Yeah, uh, absolutely. energy to it. I love the breakdown where she's like, "I like vine with lettuce and tomato." <laughs> <laughs> What is it? Big kosher pickle and a cool glass of beer? Goodness me, I... which way do I steer for my cheeseburger in paradise? It's a good oh, I have this I have this theory that I'd like to share with you guys really quickly Please. as like a quick aside. Mm-hmm. I think um Mac DeMarco is like indie Jimmy Buffett. Oh, hundred percent. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. There's uh like, you'll I find th- no objection here. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like once our generation are sort of old and gray, mm. there will be like mass pilgrimages of millennials to go see Mac DeMarco concerts. Yeah, yeah. And in the time between now and then, he will release music that is like, math sucks. And like, you know, <laughs> like he will lean into whatever his little niche is. I guess he has a song about his favorite math brand of sucks. cigarettes. Oh, that's a, that's a Jimmy Buffett wait, song. Is that, is that, uh, wait, there's a Jimmy Buffett song about him hating math? Yeah, there's a Jimmy Buffett song called that, Math Sucks. Are you, are you confusing Jimmy Buffett with The Wiggles? <laughs> uh, uh, I want to play it. I want to play it on the show. Um, is it actually called Math Sucks? Yeah, I believe it's Math Sucks with an X. Um, oh, God. Hang on. Jimmy Buffett? Yeah. Uh, it's S-U-K-S. Oh, S-U-K-S. Math S-U-K-S. I guess I shouldn't play it just in case we get in some copyright trouble from, um, from Big, Big Buffett. Buffett. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but I'll, maybe I can read out some lyrics. Um, yeah, if, please. If necessity is the mother of invention, then I'd like to kill the guy who invented this. The numbers come together in some kind of a third dimension, a regular algebraic bliss. Isn't that your band name? <laughs> what really confuses me is that like once you pass like the... T- 12th grade like you're primarily like no longer confronted with the obstacle of algebra of course yeah like, you never you have to think about that again in your life what is jimmy buffett doing as a grown-ass man writing a song about how much he hates mathematics well it turns out i'm just looking at the lyrics here he's being incredibly gendered oh really uh, in doing so they asked them the new miss america hey babe can you add up those bucks she looked puzzled then just said math sucks oh boy we all right. Well, uh, Jimmy's canceled. Yeah. Yikes. I think the Cancel thing is that Jimmy he is—he is starting with something simple, like one and one ain't three. Yep. Um, and uh, two plus two will never get you five. There are fractions in my subtraction, and X don't equal Y. But my homework is oh, bound to like multiply. That. X don't equal that, WHY. That's clever. But he's okay. Here's where I sort of uh, lose track of the metaphor mm-hmm. because those statements are all pro math. That's because true. They're in defense of math, yep. those are those are sound mathematic assertions. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, in a yeah. song that is denouncing mathematics, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're you're losing me, Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. he knows come, more come about on. it than he's letting on as well. <laughs> How yeah, did you he know? Should be How like, did you know that this exists, Xavier? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this seems like a deep cut. <laughs> yeah, you know, you you go scrolling through the Spotify page. I I I did. I just scrolled through the Spotify page for Jimmy Buffett, looking for songs that had funny titles. Okay. That's the only one that I really remember. That and Cheeseburger It's been a hard year. It's mm. okay. Yeah, exactly. You do a lot of things it's in lockdown. Right, man. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> I ran out of Alvin and the Chipmunks movies. Mm. They didn't make enough of them. Yeah. See, that would be a great crossover. Oh. Uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks doing only Jimmy Buffett songs, True. but only the anti-math Jimmy Buffett songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Math sucks in Alvin and the Chipmunks in Cheeseburger in Paradise. Mm. D- Division is for nerds. Yeah, I love that. I it wonder is, uh, if Cheeseburger in Paradise gets played in Alvin and the Chipmunks Part 3, Chipwrecked. Because that has got like a tropical beach sort of vibe to it. Oh, I mean, lost missed, missed opportunity if not. Mm. Yeah. Um, but we were talking about nothing is good enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, were, were we? <laughs> At some point. Um, I think we were talking about math sucks. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know yeah. where you got that um, from. Well, the numbers really didn't add up uh, at Interscope <laughs> Records. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh my god! I think I think nothing is good enough is like a really great. I, it's it's funny to think about a lot of her catalog as songs that work both as um, you know sort of relationship, real life sort of um, narrative type songs, and also songs that have a huge amount of meaning about her position in the music industry. Mm. Um, but I think um, the story of this one kind of came up in that 1999 New York Times article that you referenced mm-hmm. before, Spanning, um, where. 
it sort of details the recording of this song where just a few days maybe before the recording of this song, she had dropped off a stack of like seven songs at the label and they had listened over them and gone, yeah, I don't know, I'm not hearing a single, that kind okay. of, you know, that similar kind of feedback or whatever. And so she comes up with this song that is like, not really very disguised as like a music industry or label fuck you song, uh-huh. but it is also still this like very sincere, like aching, like defeated almost like it's just like dripping with misery. And it's this beautiful yeah. um, piece of like, it's like a piano ballad sort of thing. And it's not like a screaming kind of like fuck you label song that, I don't know. I guess I'm trying to think what the example that springs to mind is, but, um, you know, it is so subdued, um, but still so potent, I mm. think. Um, yeah. I mean, like if you are like, if you take a, a collection of, of angry songs, mm. like songs written out of spite from like 1999 and 2000, yeah. you would have a lot of like new metal on your hands. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You've yeah. got a lot of, of singers who are mad at their dads. Yeah. 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 And, and Amy Man ch- channels that rage into like this, like, you know, crooning piano. Yeah. yeah. Ballad. And um, there's a story in that article that I really like where they bring in a new session drummer because um, the previous session drummer wasn't quite fitting for this track for whatever reason. Uh-huh. Um, and he's this kind of scrappy dude who um, I think, you know, he plays drums part time and he's also like an A&R guy at an indie label. Um, and they bring him in and he's like, OK, so what what beat do you want me to play it in? And then Amy Mann tells him, how about the hit single beat? And then she's kind of just chuckling and saying that to him. And then she says into the mic and it's like broadcast all throughout the room. Whatever you do, don't ruin it for me. This is my last chance. (laughs) 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 I just think that's so good. That's sick. Yeah. And it turned out like that's one of the great tracks from the record. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What an iconoclast. Yeah. Yeah. I've really grown a new, uh, a, a deepened fondness for Amy Man over the course of the past 45 minutes. Mm. Um, thank you <laughs> for this masterclass. Truly, I truly I appreciate oh, it. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. I'm yeah. so thrilled to introduce this record to some people. It is, of course, very deeply linked to The Bachelor. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, there oh, are... yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't tell, touched on this enough, it. but it is in the name. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a ton on this episode. Mm. Um, I've, I've long thought, like, well, you know, how does this apply to the... How does this apply to the rigid format of reality TV that, uh, mm-hmm. that we love so dearly? Mm-hmm. And my answer is... Um, it's wherever you find it. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Spencer, do you have any do you have any final thoughts? You know, what's uh what's realer than than power structures letting you down? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So I would say uh the themes between Amy Mann's Bachelor number two mm. and the, you know, sort of weaving narratives of reality television. Wow, that's a great point. Quite uh Quite, That's quite... very astute. I didn't even think of making that that comparison. Boom. Yeah. Well, uh, Boom. Spencer, it appears that you are you are the new host of the podcast now, <laughs> and uh... so this podcast will be about songs about how much math sucks. <laughs> so if you guys want to just if you guys want to just pass it over to me, yeah, great, thank Fantastic. you. Uh, that is um, yeah. yeah, very very. I'll give you all the social logins and yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you so yeah. much. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. Great. Uh, he is Spencer Fox from the band Charlie Bliss. You can find Charlie Bliss on uh, all of the music platforms. Is there one that will pay you the most money? What is the one that we can... Oh, true. Uh, probably Bandcamp. Yeah. <laughs> yes. CB Worldwide. Okay, well, uh, look, find him on Give CB Worldwide when it exists. Uh, buy some shit on Bandcamp, <laughs> please. Um, Watch uh, Air Buddies. Oh, my mans. <laughs> it's a good oh, movie. Boy. Watch, watch right. Alvin yeah. and the Chipmunks. I don't get any royalties from that, but but just trying to say Very good, good yeah. word. Good. He's a good boy. Yeah. He means no harm. Well, Zavy. Well, Maxie. We've come to the end of the very first Batchy bonus episode. That was really fun. I'm really yeah. glad we did that. I had a lovely time with Spencer. What I, a nice man. Yeah, what a treat. I yeah. was so pleased that he agreed to do it. Um, perfect, perfect person for the job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
I think uh, I think our listeners can expect to hear a few more of those. Yes, um, with varying levels of uh, relatedness to yes. the Bachelor franchise. Understood. Um, we will have some more bonus episodes coming over the next little while. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this one. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's. Uh, uh, what do you even say? How do you even? I mean, how do I even begin to? <laughs> Look, uh, the best thing that you can do is probably go and listen to the Amy Amy Mann record wherever you listen to Absolutely. records. I should actually point out, um, it was reissued last year. Um, it is now impossible to find, obviously. It was done as like a record store day, like very beautiful deluxe version, uh-huh. which I didn't get my hands on and I'm pissed about it. Bugger. If you see a version anywhere... Fucking shoot me a message. Yes. I'm not kidding. Where can we shoot you a message? Oh, oh, that's a great point. I Well, also, before I say that, it's also available on streaming services in a new remastered beautiful version. So you should listen to that as well as mm-hmm. Charlie Bliss, who rule, um, and watch The Incredibles. Um, but if you want to send me a message about the location of the Amy Mann Record Store Day exclusive 2LP in green vinyl, which is going for like literally like $200 on eBay right now. Um, Discrepancy Record had it for 100 and I thought about it too long and then they sold their copy. Um, anyway, uh, you mm-hmm. can <laughs> you can reach out to the podcast at BOHpod on social media. Um, you can also find us in the Bachelor of Hearts Osh posting group on Facebook. That is our little community where we hang out and post things about Batchy. And I will drop some Amy Mann shit in there. Oh, you should. It's going to be fucking good. Yeah. Um, I'll... I'll put up some like live concert footage. I'll put up an interview that I found of her like in 1996 or something like prior to this album coming out, um, which is her talking about her previous struggles with the music industry. Oh, Jesus. Um, she's such a trooper. I love her so much. Um, you can also find me on social media at Xavier RN. You can find me uh, at Max Quinn. Yeah. And, and you can find the band Charlie Bliss at Charlie Bliss. Yeah. And please do. Um, Cause they're great. Yeah. And uh, you're great. Xavier. We love you. We love you, listeners. In fact, we love you. We love you. Goodbye! My life.